Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui. I'm joined today by most of the cast and crew, Matthew, uh, not Matt, uh, Andrew Wilson, uh, Alistair Roberts, and today we do have a special guest, though, uh, Matt Chandler. Uh, he's on to talk about his recent book with, uh, with David Rourke called Take Heart, and so we're really happy to have him on today. Uh, Matt Chandler, uh, how are you doing? I'm just going to refer to you with both names the entire show, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I'm well. I'm coming off of uh, seven days of being sick, and which made T4G no fun. But I, uh, uh, I'm better now and excited to be on the phone with you guys. Um, big fan. So this is fun for me to be on with uh, such stellar intellects. <laughs> and, well, and well. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're all we're all big fans of your work too. So um, feelings mutual. Uh, glad to have you on. I was going to say, just you know, give us the uh, give our give our listeners the uh, the two or three minute or four or five minute um, pitch on your book or, or the heart of it. Right? What's at the what's the heart of what's the thesis of of your uh, book? Just read it, loved it. Um, but but if if there was a the big takeaway point that you're hoping people read and grab and, and walk away with from, from reading take heart. I mean, yeah, I, you give I, them? Could, I could probably frame the book around uh, a trip I made for Acts 29 to Rome, uh, right about the time all of the stuff was going on in the United States around, uh, whether or not uh, a baker should be allowed, uh, or forced to, to make a cake for a gay wedding and several things like that. Uh, there was some bathroom legislation going on in the U.S., and uh, I was I was in Rome, and I just paid I think it was 20 euros or so to uh, walk through the Colosseum, um, and and I was thinking that here's the most powerful uh, nation r- really that I think the world's probably seen um, in Rome. You know, India to England for. Uh, 1,500 years or something like that, that that really for a season put its energy in trying to destroy us uh, as Christians. And and the gospel prevailed. Uh, And where, you know, my brothers and sisters were killed in this arena for their faith, uh, I I just paid, you know, 20 20 bucks uh, to to walk through its ruins. And, And I'm a believer in Jesus Christ pastoring a congregation um, from Dallas, Texas, which means that the, the powerful, most powerful human empire the world's seen um, didn't slow down uh, the spread of the gospel. Uh, and then when I got back home, there was, this, um, there was this increase in fear and anxiety around the rapid secularization uh, of the United States. And, and I saw uh, in the hearts of the people that I pastor, and I saw... Uh, just in uh, books that were coming out and in blogs that I was reading, a real sense among evangelicals uh, of doom uh, and of hope lost. And, and man, I just, I, I just felt compelled to just remind us and call us back to uh, embracing the margins uh, as a place that the church has flourished and undermined empires historically, whether that was Rome or whether a more modern picture would be uh, China, as you saw missionaries uh, kicked out during the revolution and now 
uh, the, the rapid spread of uh, Christianity in and around um, the, the, you know, in China uh, would be an example of uh, us being marginalized, pushed to uh, those margins, and flourishing and then undermining uh, that secularization uh, with, with power. And so that, that's what I wanted to write about and, and lay in front of our people, not to panic, don't respond in fear, don't be crippled by it, but be faithful where you are uh, and to live faithfully and obediently in the age of unbelief. Well, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, and that's, that's really, that came across loud and clear I mean, from the title to the, to the, to the, to the final page is, yeah, take heart, take courage. Um, fellas, I'm wondering if you guys had uh, questions you wanted to pitch Matt and, uh, and, and see where the conversation uh, takes us. Alice, did you want to go first? Um, okay. Um, you talk about <laughs> three different, <laughs> three different temptations that we face within our culture. Um, all of which you argue are driven to some degree or other by fear. You talk about the temptation to consume, convert, and to condemn the culture of our time. Um, I'd be interested to hear you say more about that. And also, um, all of those seem to be policies to approach the culture. Is courage a policy or is it something different? Um, and how does it present itself as an alternative to those? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, if I could just talk about kind of your second part of the question, I, I think those three things certainly aren't unique to me in regards to how we relate to culture. Uh, but, but I think more than what I'm, I'm talking about in regards to policy is, is more um, re- really what I think we see uh, in First Peter, which is what I would just call, um, man, the call to a distinct spiritual mindful Christian faith. So if we look at First Peter, the call to holiness, uh, not conformity to our day, devotion to Christ, and evangelism, which I think in this day and age looks more like hospitality than it does kind of door-to-door, uh, maybe the, the historic kind of evangelism explosion. So uh, I, I think a withdrawal from yeah. culture um, is, is certainly not what God intended. If I think back on God's call on our lives to be a moral people, whether that's what we see in the garden, whether what we see in Exodus 19, and, and then the giving of the law. After this, I'm going to make you a, a kingdom of priests uh, for the nations on into the Sermon on the Mount. You've got this call to holiness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, devotion to Jesus, not as an ancillary part of our lives, but that Jesus is our lives. Uh, and then a call to radical hospitality, a radical dinner table, an invitation into our lives uh, of those who misunderstand or would characterize or would think differently of us than, than maybe the reality of us. And, and so more than I'm, I'm arguing policy, although I, I, I want, I, I really do desire that our lives and what we believe around morality and around the moralism that I think, not moralism, but the morality that God's laid before us in the scriptures uh, leads most and best to human flourishing. Uh, I would rather it be uh, upside down rather than topside down. So I, I would rather moral lives among evangelicals um, who are serious about holiness, devoted to Jesus Christ, and are living in hospitality inform how the culture thinks about uh, morality as opposed to just legislating it via 
political means. Does, does that answer your question, Alistair? It certainly goes some way towards it, yes. Okay. Andrew. That's as good as you get from yeah. Alistair. When- <laughs> that's, that's just, uh, that yeah, is, uh, how he wanted me to nuance it. So, no, 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 that's fine. Uh, Andrew. Yeah. So I, I was, I was very, um, I thought I was literally encouraged. I know I, I endorsed the book. I thought it was great. And I was encouraged reading it. Um, I think I was, I was interested when you, when you're talking about in, uh, about, courage with respect courage isn't unipolar right so that courage faces the world there's courage with respect to the world and there's also courage with respect to things that are going on in the church and that and the dynamic between the two which i know that you've faced a little bit even in the last two or three weeks and you must do as a you pastor a large church you end up saying actually i'm saying this to the, that requires courage to speak to the world but my church love it and that requires courage to speak to the church but the world find that really hard and in, in or the world might love it but the church don't and those sorts of dynamics i wanted in a pastoral context, could you comment on how that works? And obviously, I don't want to make this all about the, your specific context right now, but I, I just thought it would be helpful because you you have experience of doing that and uh, how that works out in the pastoral life of a church, saying I need to be courageous over there, but often being courageous in what I'm saying to the world might go down really well with my immediate constituency and the things that they need to hear might actually be things that in the world are quite easy to say, but they're not easy to say here. And do you see what I mean? And I find that in my own context as well. I, I just think you're speaking always to at least two audiences and the things that require courage in one setting don't in another. How do you, how have you navigated that? How do you check yourself if you like? How do you talk to pastors you're bringing through about that dynamic and yeah, any, any kind of advice on that really? You know, first and foremost, I, I would say that I, I am truly a pastor at the Village Church, which means I'm at the hospital, I'm doing funerals, uh, I am in the foyer, you know, talking with people before uh, the service starts. I, I am in a very real way embedded in with these men and women in the context of Dallas-Fort Worth and have been for the last 15 years. And so uh, I think understanding the context I'm in has helped me shepherd people into conversations that might be seen as controversial or um, uh, or something that, that maybe many of our people would rather me not touch or, or, or be a part of. Um, and, and so what I've tried to be is ever present in conversations that, that are going on long before um, they're addressed from the stage or uh, taken on as uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to give ourselves over to this for this next season or this is one of the yeah. things we want to be about as a church. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I've always thought through the grid of theology, philosophy, practice. And so I, I want to make sure the theology is understood and embraced before we then move to the philosophy of that theology on into the practice. And so I always mm-hmm. have a theological argument for why we're doing what we're doing rather than it feeling like I'm jumping on some bandwagon or some hot button issue or so that the grid of theology philosophy practice en- enables me to show that I'm being consistent and not inconsistent. So it, what you're referring is that I have taken some pretty significant shots in and outside of the church uh, around some comments that I've made uh, around race and the issue of race. But what I can clearly draw people's attention to is that I can talk about abortion the same way and nobody accuses me of being Marxist or uh, political, but prophetic. Sure. 
And, and so by, by making sure that the village church in particular is theologically formed, uh, I now feel like I have a, a, a place to stand that's not fragile or brittle or fickle, but rooted in what has been eternally true um, uh, about, about God and about us as Christians. Um, and so that's how I've navigated it internally. One, by being approachable and by being a true pastor and not just the preacher at the Village Church. Uh, and then secondly, uh, by working hard over the years to make sure we were not theological, but we took serious theological stances around what we believe, around what many would consider secondary issues, but I find to be um, really important about how the church thinks about some of these issues in particular. Yeah, I find that helpful. A lot of times, a lot of times, some of the worst, um, I don't know, some of the worst sparks fly uh, in, in these tense church points when people start speaking out into the ether beyond their, uh, into, you know, national conversations going on from a place that isn't actually rooted and grounded in, in, um, really their, their fundamentally local practices and local, um, local congregations. Uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a helpful word for, for pastors on the theological front. I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, you go through I, the thing I, I love the most about this, uh, little book was, the, the distinctly theological focus on just reminding people who God is. Um, and this may be, may be too particular of a question, but, but I've, I'm, I'm wondering when you're talking with your people about issues of, of taking, taking courage in the culture, taking courage in their neighborhood, you know, having courage in their neighborhood, have, what, what, af, what attribute or what facet of God do you, do you find yourself just running towards quickest in just pastoral counsel of just reminding people of, of, yeah, but this is God, this is your God. Here is what he is like. And therefore like, what, where do you find yourself running to, I, I guess most often or quickest uh, with people that you find? You know, I, my immediate reaction is, is immutability. I mean, God does not change. He has not changed. He, he is not all of a sudden, he, there's not a holy huddle within the Trinity right now trying to figure this thing out. Um, that, that God is God. He has not changed his will, uh, will be accomplished. And, and, and man, the, we, we are not living in a day and age in which God is panicked or somehow lost a step or, um, is trying to figure this thing out now. Uh, he got distracted by the Middle East and that's why America's gone to pot. And so now he's got to come back here and fix America, but his, uh, immutability, his unchanging nature, uh, should bring about for us. And again, I think you're, I think we're dialing into something. I wish I had more time to flesh out in the book. The osteological nature um, of of much of evangelicalism, along with a complete lack of knowledge around Christian history, has really jammed us up and led to uh, the the fear that so many people are walking in. Um, That this feels new. Uh, and, and like something the church has never walked through before. Um, it, it's really problematic of, of kind of the in, kind of insidious prosperity gospel way that we're reading our Bible. Um, and, and, it, and it shows just a complete lack of knowledge of Christian history and just how often the church has been in this position and has ultimately thrived. 
Um, but, but to answer your question quickly, it's the immutability of God that I think that I immediately go to myself when I feel like, oh my gosh, what is this actually going to be like, um, you know, if this happens or this happens. No, that's helpful. It's helpful. Al, you want to follow up? Something I wondered about reading the book at various points. At one point you say this, you argue for an approach based on courage, saying this is a great time to be a Christian. Then another point, you say the more a government tries to subject and destroy Christianity, the more it flourishes. The more it is given friendly quarter, the more it grows weak and stale and soft, professional rather than missional. And I was wondering a couple of things from this. First of all, you talk about courage, but a lot of what you're saying is very, I suppose, bullish about the prospects of the church in a time of persecution, that we can actually thrive on the margins, that we have historically done well on the margins. But yet when you look back in history, there are also plenty of accounts of churches that have been almost wiped out by persecution and significant loss. Um, And even if there's a healthy faith restored or maintained, there can be a loss of incredibly important infrastructure that enables us to grow in our understanding of God, theological institutions, these sorts of things. I was wondering, where does lament fit into your picture? Um, How does lament square with courage? And how can courage avoid becoming just mere positivity or optimism? Yeah, I, you know, that's a, I think that's a really good point. I think um, we, we want to lament uh, at, at any point where the, the church is, is pressed and persecuted and religious freedom is stripped. And, and that was the, the thing that Christendom gave us that I would point to as the significant biggest positive uh, of that era was just the religious liberty, specifically in the institutional world. Uh, around uh, our faith, and, and I think that's where we'll feel uh, the most significant losses. And, and I think in the next uh, five to ten years, we'll, we'll really see. I think we're already starting to see uh, the losses mount towards kind of institutional education, in particular uh, around theological education, around seminaries. I think all of them are scrambling, trying to figure out what's coming next. Um, I, I think you're going to see a return to kind of church-based uh, theology. Uh, tr- theological training, uh, which honestly I, I think I'm I'm pretty excited about. But I, I think there's going to be a, a significant role for lament, and not just flag waving. Uh, you know, so long to the mushy middle. Um, but but I think what happens is lament should give way then to courage and not despair or withdrawal. Uh, and so I didn't I don't want to come across too triumphalistic uh, because this is going to hurt. Uh, and there will be some significant losses. It won't just be the loss of the mushy middle that, that I think people can celebrate. I think even I can be guilty at over-celebrating the loss of the mushy middle. Uh, but I do think we'll lose some things institutionally uh, that, that the church will then have to figure out. And, but I'm confident that she will figure out. In fact, I see some of the first fruits of that even within Acts 29, uh, in regards to in-church residencies around theological education. Um, and so I'm, I'm earnest to see, um, and, and already I'm trying to study and find historically what are the weaknesses of that and, and what are the strengths of that. I, I think we're finding in our training program here at the Village some really incredible fruit uh, by laymen and women 
um, being significantly theologically trained inside the church uh, with partnerships um, of higher uh, of higher learning. So we've got a strong partnership with Southern Seminary now, uh, where our training program gets uh, so many hours towards uh, their their um, their THM or Masters of, of Divinity. And uh, so I yeah I, I think lament should lead to courage and then innovation in regards to how we're going to train uh, the next generations of ministers um, in good, sound doctrine. Uh, but, but lament, I think, is a pathway to courage. We don't stay in lament. Uh, I think we lament and then, uh, by the grace of God, innovate and walk in courage. When I was reading your book, I was surprised to see the direction it took towards the end, where there's such an emphasis upon evangelism and hospitality. I was expecting the evangelism, not so much the emphasis on hospitality. I'd be interested to hear you say more about what is distinctive and um, powerful about a Christian practice of hospitality, and how does that fit in with the theme of courage? Well, I, I think it's a, what I'm trying to do is balance out the desire to withdraw or to simply... Um, or, or to simply have some presuppositional apologetics in your back pocket to spring on someone who, who you have not invited into your life. I, I still think where, where we're seeing men and women powerfully converted to Jesus Christ here, even in Dallas, which I would say we have not, we have not felt the crushing wave yet uh, of a lot of this. Uh, I mean, I can, still, I can still tell you that Christmas Eve and, and, and Easter services here are packed. Uh, there, it's still a cultural norm that on those two times, at least, you're going to church. Um, and, and the church is not viewed, um, by and large, as something that is grotesque or hostile just yet, where I can speak to uh, my Acts 29 brothers in Paris or in other parts of the world or even in other parts of the U.S., in New York, Seattle, San Francisco, those places where it, it's looked at as this kind of grotesque, hostile thing here it's still looked at oh man they can they might be able to help us with our kids or they might be able to help us with our marriage or so what we're seeing more and more is that when we are inviting people or into our dinner tables and into our lives in a way that's based on grace and and love and letting them see what faith looks like with their own eyes uh, we're seeing more and more people get curious about the peculiarities of being a Christian um, and learn more about the faith, not by just what we're saying, but by watching our lives and asking questions. But, but for them to get close enough to see our lives it is that, that, that practice of hospitality where I'm not going to withdraw from you. I know you think that I hate you and that I want to see your life and your way of life and your autonomy destroyed really what I want you to do is come join me at dinner and I'm, I, I want you to see my life and I want to love you and serve you and encourage you and pray for you and hope for you and, and, and show you um, that what you think about how I think and how I live is, is not correct. And so that practice of hospitality, even in our culture, that's not outright uh, aggressively hostile towards the Christian message yet, I think it's bore far more fruit than, um, say, having some pat answers around 
the question of homosexuality or around the question of transgender or around the question of you name it. Well, can, can, I ask, can I ask Derek if I got time to ask one, to ask one quick question, or are we out of time? I th I, th I think we're out of time here, uh, given given uh, our, our restrictions. So, um, Matt, I'm going to say I hope we were hospitable to you. Um, oh, I, listen, I, I, you guys were great, and uh, you can push and pull all you want. I have a ton of respect for you, brother. Most of you, no, uh, most of you. Um, well, hey, it was it was great to have you on. Um, and for our for our listeners, once more, the book is Take Art and uh, Matt Chandler, David Rourke. Uh, go ahead and check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, but for now, thank you for listening, and we hope that you are well. Mm -hmm.